hello, Rebecca here, your host. Today we have John Ostrin, who's been mixing arena shows and bigger for over 30 years. He's John Legend's monitor engineer, but he started out mixing front of house for world-class bands such as Toto, Van Halen, and a ton of other arena and stadium acts. He not only has a great story of how he got the Van Halen gig, but he also gives us his take on drum mics, touring, and what I love most about our chat is his secret of how he continually stays engaged in his career long past reaching A-list status. John is a fantastic mixer, and he's filled not only with great insights, but he has a lot to say about just being human. So without further ado, John Ostrin. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm good. How are you today, Rebecca? I'm good. Where You're in Los Angeles? Uh, I'm actually in Ventura. Oh, I love Ventura. Do you go to the beach? Not as much as I should. <laughs> Seriously, but I try. But we yeah. get the beach weather. You know, we get the overcast weather and all that. And so, yes, it's where old guys come to try to retire. Oh, please. <laughs> so speaking of, I think that you have the most time out of any guest I've ever interviewed on this show mixing. You have 36 years mixing. I'd say 30, 31 years mixing. Great. I feel old. Like the first four years was schlepping in the shop learning how to pack trucks, put cable away, keep management, you know, gear, being a third or fourth man on the audio crew on tour, maybe get to mix the opening act and push faders. Maybe, right? Maybe. maybe. Really yeah. quick, let's rewind though. How did you get into audio and how did you know that you wanted to be in audio? Okay, I took a strange route. I had no intention. Got into UC Santa Barbara, did about a year and a half up there, didn't declare a major, got into trouble, dropped out at the end of my second year and went into rehab of all places. Oh, goodness. Okay. You were already made for rock and roll before you even started in rock and roll. Well, I was because my actual, my route into this business was I went to my first concert at 11 and I was hooked. Who was it? Uh, my older brother took us. It was ELO, Journey, and Bob Weir's band. It was the year that Steve Perry had just started stepping out as front singer for Journey. Okay. Fred Rawley and all that. Yeah. And then the next show we went to as kids, friends, 12 years old, getting on the bus and going to the show was Pat Travers at Santa Monica Civic. And the opening act was Def Leppard. Oh and my gosh. Rick Allen was 15. It was their first trip to America. <laughs> so that was my first experience of like buy the record, memorize the record, see the show. And then the next show we went to after that was Van Halen's first arena headlining tour. And you worked for Van Halen at some point, And I right? worked for Van Halen 10, 12 years later. Yeah. I have all these strange circles. So yes. I came up as a concert goer, like a fan of the essence of going to a rock show. Got it. You know? Okay. And the ultimate for me was when the house lights dropped and the crowd went wild and the kabuki or whatever was about to drop and that energy of the start of the show. So that's what hooked me. Back to your question, I literally stumbled into a recording school after dropping out of college and did a year of that. And at the end of that class, all the, the lessons, they had an elective course on live audio. Hmm. And the teacher just took me aside and said, you've got a knack for this. I want you to pursue this. And I stumbled. Yeah, I mean, I stumbled in. Literally, a friend of mine's uncle was a live engineer, took me on a little tour. 
At the end of that, we were dumping the gear at Schubert Systems shop in Gardena. Dirk handed me a W-4 to fill out. And <laughs> that was that. Yeah. And then he said, you know, if you want to go on the road, how much would you want to get paid? And I said, I don't know, 400 bucks a week, 450 bucks a week. It'd be awesome. He's like, okay, you're hired. I mean, it was, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. So then fast forward, how did you get, was your, so your first gig was working for a sound company that like you just said, and then how did you get into mixing more? I got, Dirk was mixing a lot of the acts at our clients and he was booked to go mix Bruce Hornsby. And cool. Toto was gearing up for another tour. Now, this is 1990. Jeff Picard was still alive. They had done this album called Past to Present. And Dirk couldn't do both. And I had met the guys in rehearsals. And Steve Lukather and Jeff Picard said, let's give the kid a shot. I was 24, 25. Wow. We were selling out two and three nights in arenas all over Europe. Oh, my God. And that was your first gig. My third gig live with them was at the Globin in Stockholm, 20,000 people doing the wave before the show. And I was like, my heart's <laughs> going to stop when the fucking house lights go out. Like, seriously. And I think it took me five years to start mixing, like, relaxed without, you know, but... And were you mixing front of house on that gig? I was mixing front of house. And they were, and still are, the adamant perfectionists. But here was the advantage. This is 90. So we used to ship all the gear to Europe. Front of house console, monitor rig, all the band gear. And the keyboard rig was all being submixed through either a 40-channel gamble console or we had broke it down to a 24 at that point. And I was on a gamble EX. The EX had been out for about a year and a half. So we rehearsed in LA at the shop for two weeks before we had even shipped over and gone there. So we carried our, we had our own massive step-up transformer that we had, step-down transformer that we had. And the monitor engineer was a guy named Alan Bonomo, who was one of my mentors. And the band took the time to teach me. They taught me fidelity. They taught me how to, you know, they were advocates of everything above 12K, everything below 60 Hertz, that magic you add a little bit on the background vocal mix, you add a little bit of that on the synths, a little bit on the air on the guitar, a little bit of that on the entire mix and how to just bring sound alive, you know? Mm. They have a lot of effects too. I mean, you must have gotten really dialed in learning that. Yes, and Dirk showed me a lot of stuff. The advantage I had, and I don't know, honestly, Rebecca, I don't know where I got it. I had the mix in my head before I ever got on the console. Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. I think that's the approach. It has been for me. Can I hear the final mix? Can I know where I'm going to go to? Rather than just bring it up, see what the PA does, find my way, I want to know my destination before I start. And I had that with them somehow. The effects thing is interesting because not only was it a lot of verbs, a lot of echo, you know, delays and harmonizers and stuff, but it was five vocalists at any given time one guy was singing lead while the others were doing the harmonies so your levels were all over not only that but i was reassigning channels to subgroups and inserting and pulling out compressors and assigning effects on the fly but you fast forward 10 years or 12 14 years whatever it was when they brought me the avid console and they said you can do all that in snapshots 
<laughs> I was hooked. Sold. Right. But up until then, it was constant changing effects, da-da-da, maybe using MIDI, you know, all that stuff. So Interesting. Um, yeah. So how long were you with them? I mixed Toto on and off over 20 years. I, I came and went, swapped out with a couple other guys, did a few really strong tours. What was your next step professionally after them? Well, in rehearsals with Toto, and this is only what myths are written of, the last day of band rehearsals was invite your family and friends to watch the band play the set. So we start up and I'm in the shop mixing and this scruffy guy walks in looking for the bathroom. So I point him down to the hallway and before he comes out, my boss's wife comes out and she goes, do you know who that is? And I said, yeah, that's Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> so Ed walks out of the bathroom, comes back and he stops and he's looking and trying to figure out what I'm doing because he doesn't understand this concept of front of house rig while band rehearsals. And I said, I'm mixing the, you know, mixing the tour, getting dialed in. He goes, can I hang out? I'm like, yeah. And he sat with me for two hours. Wow. Him and his guitar tech, Matty Bruck. And afterwards, after they were kibitzing around, he came back in and he said, uh, you ever mix a band like Van Halen? And I said, give me the shot. I'll fucking blow your mind. You know, <laughs> just talking shit. Like, what else are you going to say? A year later, he called me. A year later, he called me. It was the greatest gig of my life. It was the fuck tour in 91. The monitor engineer was Jim Yakabuski. He had done Poison, but it was his first big jump. Matt Bruck was his guitar tech, who was 24. Rob Kern was the drum tech. Who was, we were all in our 20s. We were all, this was it. And to this day, we're all very good friends, 30-some years later. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was, the, it was the greatest. What was some of the biggest shows that you've ever done? I mean, all those artists are just ginormous. I mean, I don't know who would be bigger. Well, with Toto, we carried a rig in the arenas in Europe. We did a festival run the next summer where we were doing 50,000. They were headlining 50,000 capacity people attendance festivals in Germany and Holland and all those outdoor ones, right? Yeah. You know, the outdoor ones with one analog console and you had to chart your settings after sound checked and, you know, <laughs> I totally remember that. Turn the desk on when the band hits and pray it doesn't explode. <laughs> that was scary stuff. On Van Halen, we did some indoor stadiums. The arenas were. The old arenas, you know, the Philly Spectrum, LA Forum, Boston Gardens, Montreal Forum, all the iconic hockey arenas from the old days. Rooms that you were, your show depended on the acoustics of the room because the PA was only going to do what it was going to do. And literally you could walk in. Mario Lachesi was my crew chief. Mario's passed away about a year and a half ago. And I'd come in and he'd take a heavy lidded wood road case and slam the lid down. And we'd listen to the room. Oh my gosh. And he'd look at me and go, you're fucked. Or <laughs> you're going to have a good night. And that was it. I mean... And it was the wooden Ron Box case. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you got a graphic EQ and you got a ton of S4s and you're kind of limited. But that was the challenge. That was, that was the excitement of it. Yeah. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your transition into digital consoles and the next act that you really had to facilitate on digital consoles. So I, st I actually got... Robert Scovel's avid venues, the DigiDesign venues during NAM. Steve McHale brought it over and he was really great. I said, I don't want to go digital. I'm staying analog. I felt the same way. Right? Well, because I've learned how to mix. I'm learning how to mix. I don't, want to re I don't want to learn the desk. It's a lot of work. And he said, 
he had a great conversation. He says, how do you mix? And I explained to him. And he said, what if I can show you how to change all that in one scene, like we were talking about? All the patching. All the patching, all the moving channels, you know, effects changes, everything. He said, okay, so we sat at the console and he says, approach it the way you would an analog desk. This board's laid out where you could mix differently than 10 other guys. So do it, you know, customize it. So I approached it like an analog board and I just fell in love with it. I mean, from day one, I never went back. And here's what it did for me. It slowed down my mixing because mm-hmm. I couldn't mix reactionally. I couldn't panic. I couldn't, you know, I'm a tweaker. You give me a row of knobs and I'm, I'll mix myself. You're all over them. Yeah, and I, you know, and I would always... Well, but here's another thing that I learned because I, I kind of want to throw some pointers out to anyone who's starting. I'd love for you to do that. So I'm going to go back to Van Halen. About five shows into the tour, my front of house tech said, your mix is there. You've got the mix. All your gain structure, all your effects, your inserts, your compressors and gates, everything's looking great. You've got everything coming out to the left and right is working. So don't mess with it. Your job now on the tour is to tune the PA as close to what you had the night before and mix the show. And so when I went to the digital world, it was the same approach. When I've got my mix, the hard part's done. Now I can just focus on going through the mechanics from song to song to song, obviously adjusting with room acoustics, vibe of the energy of the band or the audience, and keep it simple that way, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'll admit I'm primarily an avid guy. I have not taken the time to learn the Digicos and the Yamahas and all that stuff. I can get around it when I have to. So I, I stayed out front and I mixed Boz Skaggs for a little bit. I did Jason. I worked with Jason Bonham and his Led Zeppelin experience when he first started. We did, oh my God. We did a few runs, which was incredible because I'm a huge Zeppelin fan. How about drums? Do you have any tuning or any mix? Uh, just help people learn something about mixing drums? Well, I've been blessed. I mean... If you don't know who Jeff Picaro is, please look him up. Jeff was the number one studio musician back in the 70s and 80s in Los Angeles. He's on almost every recording. A guy that never bothered coming out front. You know, he trusted you implicitly. Hmm. The key with Jeff is the hi-hat. If you're not hearing the hi-hat and it's not placed right, that's his whole shuffle groove. The problem with him was his drums were so easy to make sound amazing that I thought all drum kits were easy. Were that easy? You know? What do you find the hardest thing about, I mean, I know it depends on the drum kit, the room, everything, but in general, if you were to pick one thing that you think a great, great engineer's master when they're mixing drums, what would you say it is? Yeah, that's easy. Kick drum and specifically in response with the bass guitar. Mm -hmm. If I can get the kick and bass guitar locked, the rest is a piece of cake. You know, and I learned this in the studio with Van Halen when we worked on the live album, just because you've got a great kick drum sound and you've got a great bass guitar sound, they may not mend together. So listen to one with the other. You know, Dirk taught me, you've got to chisel out some stuff you might love in the kick drum to make the bass guitar fit or vice versa. Mm -hmm. You might have to make a piano a little tingy or, or kind of pointed in the upper mid to fit with the guitar or vice versa. So mm-hmm. I get into a bad habit of listening to one instrument alone. And so to keep it in context with everything, 
that's one of the biggest pointers, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, and then with drums, you can kind of be free. I mean, I lean on bottom snare mics a lot for effects rather than the direct mic sound. Hmm. Toms to me, I used to have an approach where I was, okay, I'd get the tom sounds and then I would add the overheads. I like panning, but not too wide. I used to pan too wide. It's like, oh my God, the audience should not be turning their head like a tennis match <laughs> to listen to a drum fill. <laughs> like, seriously. But after Jeffrey died, Simon Phillips came in and took over playing drums. And Simon's kit is 19 microphones. Oh my God. It's double kick, two snares, four racks, two floors, four octobons, a gong drum, overheads, two hi-hats. But his kit is super easy because he would, he said, here's the approach. Listen to the snare drum with the close mic, top and bottom. Now bring in your overheads and hear how the colors changed and maybe mess with phase. Maybe put the snare top out of phase. Maybe put like what Robert Scoville does a lot, time alignment with microphones. Mm -hmm. then ease the toms in. And if you start needing to add or subtract, stay away from the gates. I hate gates unless it's on a drum where you're going to really be sending some energy to the subs and you just don't want it to really feed back. And if you got a good drum tech and you're getting an overtone, if your first floor tom's got a ring, it always could be rack three. It could be the bottom head. It could be the top head. It could be mic placement. And I used to go after EQ immediately. Mm -hmm. And so now I try to either get the drum tech to tune it a bit or move the microphone a bit. Brilliant. Yeah, so it's not not so much about the tools, but more about the analog world to have the origination be strong wherever it is. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with turning up a drum fill 6 dB and have it make an audience go like that. Especially some iconic drum fill that, you know, Everyone knows, you know, I mean, I guess Phil Collins comes to mind, but I never really, I never worked with them. But you can have parts of that be dynamic, I guess, when apropos with certain bands, you know. So let's go, let's move on to your transition out of front of house into monitors. You're a monitor engineer for John Legend and you have been for how long? Good part of 13 years now. That's, I love him. So tell me how that happened and maybe give some advice on on what you've learned working with John. Um, well, I had done some monitor mixing previously, mostly wedges, a little bit of in-ears. I really had no experience with in-ears. I ended up on John, although I wanted to mix front of house for him. Dave Shadone sent me out as system tech. Dave Shadone's the owner of Sound Image. John had just become an account in 2008 back when the good old days when Barack Obama was elected. Um, But I digress. (laughs) So I was responsible for hanging stage left PA and teching the monitor rig. The monitor engineer at the time had been there a year, Paul Clemson. And Paul was working on getting a job on Jimmy Fallon's TV show, New York. So while he was kind of flying in and out, I would jump on the desk. And then he got the job and handed me the gig. Ah, that's a good gig. Yeah, both of your gigs. Well, it's funny because he said, I'm trying to get this gig. If I do, do you want my, my job? And I said, no, I don't, I'm not a monitor guy. I have no interest whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, there's 12 musicians up there. Yeah, that can't be easy. Oh, God, no. And the band was constantly up, down, this, that, backwards, forwards, gimme, gimme, gimme. What I noticed was that John himself never looked at Paul. Hmm. 10 shows in a row, never looked at him, never asked for anything. I said, okay, I'll take the gig. Because yeah. I'm used to what we're all used to. 
you know, drumsticks flying, being called into the dressing room, yelled at, what the fuck, all, you know. Totally. Oh, and here's what's interesting. With working with Toto for so long, and I did monitors for them in rehearsals a lot, my approach and what I was taught was anticipate what that singer is going to ask for before he even does the gesture. Mm -hmm. Have your finger on that knob to give him a little more vocal. You are their conduit to the audience. You are the most important person that's going to keep them in their groove. In their zone. Their yeah. zone to perform. So I took over for John and it was all ears, a couple wedges, but we got rid of those. And I had to go through the process of learning how to deal with ears. I ended up approaching it the same way I do front of house. I EQ my ear mixes on the back end on graphics. Now, now I'm on the S6L, so I use the seven band parametric. I have a couple different manufacturers on stage with in-ears. I use Future Sonics. Sure. Because yeah. that's what John was on when we started. And after about six years, guys are like, you got to try Jerry's stuff. You got to try Sensophonics. And I'm like, look, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Totally. That's a great piece of advice we could hang up right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm going to tell this to people listening. Roxanne's might sound 10 times better than what I'm using. I hope Marty Garcia is not listening. But so what happens if I ask John to have impressions made and I give him a brand new pair of Roxanne's and he goes, these are the most amazing things I've ever heard. Why haven't I had these for 10 years? Or he's going to say, why did I just spend six grand on these? These are terrible. Well, a couple. He's, <laughs> yeah. So, and John and I do not talk audio. I mean, obviously at this point, it's because I know him so well. He trusts you. Yeah. Even in the beginning, his assumption was, I'm the engineer. I know what he needs better than he does. So I just had to do it. That's interesting. So back to what your question originally was, what I did was I approached the band and I gave them all the love and attention they could ever wish for. And then they left me alone. And then I could focus on John solely. John doesn't show up for soundcheck. It's just the band. And we can knock it out in 20 minutes and they're all 95% good. Pretty happy. Happy enough. And so I approach it like a front of house mix. I'll pan stuff. I'll give each of my horn players their own verb. I'll have a delay for my background singer for a solo, but I will not mix for them during the show. Hmm, interesting. I might turn on and off slates. I might make click adjustments in scenes, but they understand I mix for John and I mix for John the entire show. Beautiful. And none of that is him sitting down saying, okay, here are my notes in this song. I want this, that it's all just relationship. It's let me back the background singers down when he's singing with them so at least he doesn't get lost in the pitch. Let me give him more hi-hat when I feel he's rushing or dragging. Anticipating. There's the anticipating, yeah. Yes. And how is it working with, with his piano? I mean, is it all MIDI that you do now or does he play acoustic pianos? Or Yeah, it's when we tour, it's a Yamaha C7 MIDI Grand. We take the MIDI out of the piano and we carry our own Yamaha. I think they're... Yes, I can't remember the model number. And it's just a full grand piano sound. Mm -hmm. And we take the reverb back 30% or something. We do have it going into a, a stereo radial DI where I have a switcher. I can switch between the modules. But that's only a safety net. If one goes down, I can go to the other. It's basically a full grand piano sound that he's just used to hearing. 
That way it's consistency. You don't have any bleed. We also mic it. We mic it with a pair of 414s. Okay. I'm, I'm now slowly making the move to DPA 4099s. And is that just for like little attack ads or what? what is that for? For me on stage, it's in case of an emergency. I only give it to them if the MIDI craps out. I see. Okay. And here's why. 60% of the work I do with John is solo performances. Oh, Corporates, okay. privates. Congratulations. Oh, God, it's the best. <laughs> That's got to be the best. And what I do is, I, and I've been doing this for 10 years, I will mix his in-ears from front of house. And cool. for the listeners, I'll explain how I do that in a minute. So at front of house, when you take, when you try to blend the MIDI and the microphones, you've got latency with the MIDI. Oh, okay. You've got latency of up to about 250 samples, which I think is around five and a half milliseconds, something like that. Which is a lot. Yeah. Well, it's basically now you have an out of tune piano. Yeah. I'll delay the mics, get rid of the low end. And I would just, like you said, I just add it for the attack because the lid's closed. So it sounds kind of dull and dead. Mm. The MIDI doesn't have a lot of liveness to it. I'll add the mics about 35% just to give it a little air, a little liveness. Yeah, so, but my downside is I'm not a musician. If a piano's sharp or flat, I can't tell. I see. Because I'm not a player. So as an engineer, I better be careful because I could go, oh, that sounds great. And people in the audience- And not know that I've just ruined his piano sound. Well, it's great they have piano techs. You could blame it on them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so since we've kind of gotten the overhaul of your entire amazing career, I'm just curious, after doing what you've done at the level that you've done it, how do you maintain enjoying the industry when you've sort of been there, done that, seen it all, worked with all these world-class artists? Mm. Well, so on the, the, the work, I enjoy on the S6L, I like... My mix is kind of dialed in. There's not a lot of changing there. The functions of the console, I love. Making things easier. I was joking with somebody the other day at The Voice. I said, I can't be bothered to even reach up to the middle of the console to select bank pages, input banks and output banks, or solo switches, which are you know eight inches away. So I've made function switches on the bottom do all that. But then the creativity of, I can tell the console... When I push my VCA on my audience mics to a certain point, the inside ones get too loud. So I tell the desk to bring those down 6 dB. Or just these fun stuff. You know, if you can think it, you could make it happen. I see. The other enjoyment I find really is watching my artist have a good time and watching his success. I mean, the rare situation of being with a guy like John Legend, when I started, we could walk through the airport together and nobody bothered him. Now I never see him because he's on the private jet and he's doing his thing. But the things that he says were her most, his most memorable performances and in interviews, I was right there. Watching him get married, watching him have kids. His family was with us on tour and I got to play with the kids in the pool. Watching his life improve, because I got to tell you in all honesty and I won't name names, I really don't respect a lot of artists who treat their crew in a not a very positive way. Yeah, poorly. All of a sudden, I've found that there's a division where they forget about humanity. And it's really about like being famous or whatever. They just lose touch with communication skills, I've found. And I understand that. I mean, to be treated that way your whole life, I get it. John's a rare case of being grounded. 
And I will say what I really wanted to talk about, which we probably won't even have time to, is not the concert. The important thing is, is like advocacy work. Your podcast, for example, Sound Girls. I mean, how do I, at 57, start learning how to tour and have respect for women and treat women equally with that balance? I mean, we have rules on our tours now that we didn't have back in the day. And I've taken that role on happily. And, you know, we're not carrying cancer. We're just putting on a rock <laughs> show. We're, you know, we're, just, but what we're doing is we're trying to entertain people for a couple hours who are trying to escape their problems, their issues, their whatever. If I get my ego out of the way and just do my job, and my job is to keep John and the band in a zone emotionally, spiritually, mentally for them to do what they have. I'll get grandiose and say, put on this earth to do, but it ain't about what he's hearing. It's not the quality and the fidelity and how perfect the reverb decay time is. Why John loves me is because I keep my eye on him. The towel is clean next to the piano. The water is room temperature. It's who you are, John. And also, I mean, it's kind of funny that you're both named John. I mean, (laughs) John, the Johns. I think that's one of the most important points that I've heard a lot of the really successful monitor engineers or engineers in general bring up is just that it's about who you are and not as much because there's always someone willing to take the gig. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that's fascinating about it is I would give people advice on learn psychology and understand the psychology of your musicians. I mean, it's difficult on the road, as we all know. You know, we're away from our families Some people are dealing with substance abuse. Some people are dealing with divorce, financial issues, what have you. And if they look over at me and I'm looking panicked, what would that do to a musician's psyche? And a lot of times, if a musician doesn't look at you, they're fine with the mix. That's right. The second second they make eye contact with you and they start thinking about it, they find 10 things wrong with it. We do the same thing in front of house, you know? So I try not to take things personally. I try to put myself in their shoes. Some of them are just, I can't help them. I just, mm-hmm. sorry, I've done everything I can. I just can't, you know. And that's a valuable thing to know when, you, when you're not on the same wavelength as the artist because it is, it is a match made, you know, and it could be made in hell or heaven. Yeah, and you're going to go through stuff. It's yep. going to be, you know, if, if you're willing to do monitors. I love the job because I like the excitement of being on stage and I, the energy at front of house is enough there's too much anxiety involved in it for me at this point. I was going to ask you, actually, one of just is there ever, after doing sound as long as you have, do you still get nervous before a show? Because I never ditched that feeling. I always get nervous. Me too. Okay, good. I actually, we were doing a solo performance for Joni Mitchell's tribute for Music Cares. Oh, God. Beautiful. Earlier in the year. Mm. And John was on a piano in the center of the, the room. And I said to his manager and road manager, I said, do you guys get nervous before a performance? They're like, no. And (laughs) and hopefully you don't. And I said, I get nervous every time. (laughs) And thank God I do. Because it's, you know, I go through that checklist. Did the mics fall? Should I go look, make sure they're not laying on the strings? Is the mic stand going to drop or droop before he sits down? Did I change batteries? 
constant checklist. I'm so glad to hear you, someone of your ilk, say this because I have always wondered when it was going to wear off. And it it just doesn't. And you know, I think it's because we care so much too, because of what you talked about previously about just it's a spiritual experience for the artist and everybody up there. And it matters. It all matters. Yeah. And a little fear helps, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's a scary thing what we do. I mean, when, when you think about the weight that's hanging in the air and the amount of energy that's physically happening, it, it's a scary thing. And so I get nervous, but it's more, it keeps me in check. I don't get complacent. That's the difference. Yep. Not out of fear of losing the job, but I might miss out on an experience. My three greatest shows with John Legend, one was in a prison, one was in a bar, and one was at a woman's prison. Oh my God, tell me about that, the prison. Well, John does a lot of advocacy work for uh, helping restructure the, ju- the... the Penitentiary system, the penal system. Ex- exactly. So we did one gig at a woman's, all-women's facility in Washington, and it was an upright piano that was beat to crap, and we had a guy come in and fix it and tune it, and the 58 had dents in it and rust, and I mixed on a little analog nothing thing. In prison. That is incredible. In a prison. And he finished the set with all of me and the women were hugging each other and crying and sobbing. And it was like, like hope and love. And I was like crying. The other event we did was in Dayton, Ohio, a week after the mass shooting that took place a few years ago. Because John grew up in that area by Springfield. And we went into the bar where the, the attack happened and... We had a piano and crap gear. I mean, disgusting gear. It was a Soundcraft little analog board with one reverb knob at the top. And John did an hour. Wow. I mean, and John, you know, and he sat down and started with Here Comes the Sun. And I'm talking big guys, biker guys, like, you know, opposite political views of me, women, young gals, family members for an hour. And I wrote John an email after the show and I said, we changed lives tonight. We help people go to bed at night and maybe, you know, be okay being alone. And he was like, he was like, oh, thanks. And I'm like, and I wrote him back. I said, no, no, you don't understand what I'm telling you. We changed lives tonight by doing what we do. And it's the first time that's ever happened. Second time it's ever happened to me in my career. The first time was when I got to do a show in Iraq during the war. And that was a similar experience. So when you talk about these great gigs, it's not sold out Madison Square Garden. It's not you know, 100,000 people, it's 75 people in a bar who are scarred by a tragedy they happen to have experienced and you bring something to them. And two years later, I took my buddy to lunch. We went back to that bar and had lunch and met mm. a few of them. And, you know, wow. I mean, that's, that's what we get to do in this business. So that gets back to your question. That's what keeps it exciting. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to find your way. And I will. And I do want to plug something if you don't mind. Do it. I've been in recovery a long, long time. And during the pandemic, I was concerned about going back to work and not maintaining my sobriety. Not that I was worried about getting loaded again or drinking again, but the spiritual side of it. So a friend of mine and I started a 12-step meeting on Zoom for roadies only. Wow. And it, yeah, we've been going almost two years. So if anyone's listening and is interested... Just find me on Facebook and send me a message and I'll send you a link. But that ties in with what we're talking about. People on tours now, at least my experience, is we're talking through problems. Band members and I, you know, and the communication's better. And then the show's better. Yeah, which is welcomed because it's always had the 
stigmas attached to rock and roll. And thanks for saying what you did. I, I absolutely appreciate you putting that out there for anybody that might be struggling with anything like substance abuse or anything. Contact John. Yeah. Not all at once. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you invite 100 and maybe one shows That's up. Right. You know? So the last thing I always end the show with is if you could just give us an album recommendation from top to bottom, a record that you love that is either timeless or new or anything. What are you listening to now? Just something that you love. Um, there's only one that comes to mind. And this is... You could put any scenario... It's my album if I'm stuck on a desert island. It's my album if my, my funeral. It's Rush 2112. Okay. I got turned on to 2112 when I was 14. I'm 57. It's still my go-to, you know. Thank you. That's perfect. That's a good question. I like that question. Got to, well, you've given so much to our audience. That's what we always try. So, I mean, really, John... You're an incredible force in the industry, an early engineer that's that's maintained through all of so many things and you've really grown. And I appreciate you coming and spending your time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It was nice meeting you. Nice meeting you too. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Thanks. At Soundgirls, our mission is to inspire and empower the next generation of women in audio and music production. We provide you tools, knowledge, and support to further your careers. And we do it because we care. So follow us on Instagram at SoundGirlsPod, and you can find a huge amount of info on upcoming workshops and job resources at SoundGirls.org. Looking for more audio-related podcasts? Check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all of the other podcasts in the Alliance, make sure to visit audiopodcast.org. The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Robbie Mortimer. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jess Fenton. And we send a big thank you to our sponsors, QSC, who, like Sound Girls, also wants to help empower you with the right tools, support, and service to help you create impactful connections. Find out more at soundgirls.org and qsc.com.